Well, I thought I'd begin this morning by speaking and thinking about something that is very common for us as human beings, and yet very unwelcome, and that is failure. Failure is something that we're all acquainted with, and yet something that we're not very eager to, uh, to have as part of our, our life or our circumstances. Uh, failure is, is just part of what it means to be human. And just to remind us of this, uh, I've got a few examples of some failures of design and construction. Just to remind us. Like this, is, this is what it means to be a human being. So in this first example, uh, someone needed to put a new wall up in a room. And so they just decided to put that wall there and uh, didn't think about the drawers. Hopefully nothing was in those drawers they needed. Uh, for they will never get them again. Uh, this next picture is of someone whose their job was to design a drainage system for the park, and uh, they, they managed to put the drain at the highest point, which doesn't, doesn't work very well uh, for drainage. The third is a very uh, convenient ATM right there on the street uh, for, for people who need to use it. Uh, it just was a little high, right? All of these, you can imagine someone saying, that, that's not the way that should have gone. It was, it was a fail. Uh, Sometimes failure comes as the result of of trying something new, pushing the limits, and and so there's failure because we're we're trying something out, but very often it comes uh, because of some error on our part, Uh, a a failure, you know, brokenness of character, an error in judgment, pride, and and that's the kind of failure that we're really going to focus on today because we are going to be looking at the next uh, part of the Easter story, which is one of the most famous, or you'd say infamous, Uh, accounts of failure in the Bible, and that is Peter. Peter, who denies Jesus three times just before the rooster crows, just as Jesus told him it was going to happen. It's an epic fail, which is why that's the title of our sermon. Uh, This is a a painting that was done by an artist uh, I know, and I I thought really captures the kind of that look of of Peter, that dejection, that that sorrow at his own failure. What we're going to do is we're going to look not only at the failure itself, but the lead up to it. And our goal here is going to be uh, a better understanding of the nature of faith, the depth of God's grace, how we should respond to failure, how we can prevent ourselves from being in that place again. And we're actually not just going to look at Peter, he's the focal point, uh, but we're also going to look a little bit at the response of Judas, two disciples who failed miserably. A little bit of context before I read our passage. Uh, Oh, we're going to be in Matthew 26, if you want to turn there, uh, beginning in verse 69. The context here is that Jesus has already been arrested. Uh, He's been arrested under false pretenses. Uh, He's been uh, taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And there he is going through a sort of, really a kangaroo court, uh, this this trial that's unjust. They're bringing in false witnesses to to testify against him. And during this time, uh, some of the disciples have followed, kind of in in the distance, and they're coming up to Caiaphas' house. So what I... What I want you to imagine is it's about 1 a.m., dark. There's a, a big house and a front courtyard that's fenced in. And in that courtyard, in the middle, there's a fire going to keep people warm. And the people who are, you know, involved with the household, they're there waiting, waiting to see what would happen, waiting to see if they're needed. And some of the disciples, Peter included, have kind of slipped into that courtyard. And that is where we pick up the story. So here is uh, verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard... And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. 
After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. That's the main portion of the text we're going to look at. Now, one thing about failure uh, that's true for me, probably true for you, is that when we go through failure, we tend to want to move on from it as quickly as we can. Uh, very rarely, when we you know, fail miserably at a recipe, do we Instagram it that, right? We, that's not the one we take a picture of. We, try not, we want to forget about it. If it's a bad mark on a test, we probably just put that at the back of our binder or crumple it up. We don't really want to be reminded of it. But if we do that with our failure in life, we will miss some opportunities. I came across this quote from James Dyson. James uh, Dyson, inventor of the Dyson vacuum, of which we as a church are an owner. So we have vested interest here. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, failure is interesting. It's part of making progress. You never learn from success, but you do learn from failure. And so if you know the story of the Dyson vacuum, he spent 15 years developing uh, the prototype, the one that he thought was the best. There were, according to him, 5,126 failed versions of that vacuum. So next time you use it, you should be like, this, is, this better be a pretty good vacuum. He really worked at it. And his point was that every time he failed, he would, he would examine it, he would make things better and better. And that's, that's what we, are, we have the opportunity to do. So with Peter, we are going to look at the failure itself, but I want to step back a bit and look at the road to failure. There's going to be three uh, points kind of guiding our time together. The first one is, is the road to failure. How is it that Peter came to that courtyard unprepared for the trial that was before him? So there are three things in the road to failure, three kind of missteps as he walked, went towards that courtyard. Uh, the first thing that we see with Peter is that he was full of pride. If you're on want to fail miserably, you need to be full of pride. And we know this because of some of the interactions between Peter and Jesus at the Last Supper. So the Last Supper happened just before Jesus was arrested. There Jesus was bringing uh, his disciples together, teaching them. That's where the uh, communion meal was established. And during that time, Jesus said to them, look, all of you guys, you're going to abandon me, which was shocking for all of them. But with Peter, he wasn't just shocked. He was he was kind of offended, like his pride was hurt. And in his response, you see how full of himself he is. This is Matthew 26, verse 33 to 35. Peter answered him, though they all will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Which you see his pride right away. He's very quick to throw the rest of the disciples under the bus. Look, yeah, I get it, Lord. They're going to they're gonna fail, but not me, because I'm solid. Jesus then points him out. He says, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So here, we need to recognize Peter isn't, he's not putting on a show. I think he really believes that he is the one who is going to stand the test. He is the one, his confidence is full, but it's full in his own strength. That's the problem. That that he's he's resolute, he's very confident, but the, the source of that Strength is not in Christ or in, in God, it's in himself. His response isn't, man, Lord, I, I know it's going to be tough. I just, I pray you'd help to strengthen me. I don't, I don't want to deny you. He doesn't say that. He said, I never will. What we see here is that because of his pride, he has a false sense of security, a false sense of confidence. 
And because of that, he does not see the areas of weakness in himself that he needs to see. The other thing that his pride leads him to, you can see it already, is that it leads him to ignore the warnings of Jesus. That's the second thing. On the road to failure, he ignores warnings. Uh, In Luke's version, so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, four gospels, all basically telling the same story of the the life, uh, ministry, and death, and real life of Jesus. Um, But in Luke's account, we get a bit more detail. So here's what Luke says about that same interaction. Uh, Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon. uh, Peter has two names. A lot of them have two names. It's just the way it is. So Simon, Simon. Behold, uh, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now here Jesus is being very gracious, saying, look, here's, this is what's coming. No matter what confidence you think you have, Satan himself has demanded to have you. There is going to be a trial. I'm praying for you. But if you notice in the response, it's as if Peter doesn't even hear what Jesus is saying. His response is, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But of course he's not ready. And because he hasn't really heard Jesus, he's also not on his guard in the way that he should have been when he entered that courtyard. Can you relate to that mindset that Peter has of being so sure about something or so sure about yourself that you're barreling forward and there are people in your life that are trying to speak into your life and you're not even listening because you're so sure about so many things. Maybe even the word of God is, is trying to, the spirit of God is trying to speak to you, but you're, you're barreling on ahead. There's an instance in my life that, that came to my mind immediately when I, when I was thinking of this. And this happened just a few years ago uh, on the road to planting Tri-City Church. It was at a point in, in my life, in my wife Dawn's life, we had felt uh, convicted, felt called by God to plant a church. Uh, we didn't know exactly where. We knew the Tri-Cities. And at that time, I was on staff at Westside Church, one of our, our planting churches. And I had began to express this desire, saying to the elders, saying to some of the guys on staff, look, I think that we're called to plant a church. I think this is what I should do. And at the time, uh, the Westside elders were, were reluctant, would be a fair way to say it. Not, not exactly in agreement. But I was sure this is what God was calling me to. And he was, it was right now. So I said, we've got to keep talking about this. I kept bringing it up. I kept wanting to have meetings. And eventually I found myself in a meeting with a number of the elders and they began to push back. And their reluctance was because of certain areas of, of character issues, pride issues in me. And every time they would say something to me in that meeting, I, I remember I had, I had an answer right away. I would always, I would answer back. You, you tell me something, yeah, but this, I would explain it away. I always had something to say until finally... One of the elders just said, Matt, Matt, you're not hearing us. And right as he was saying that, I, had, I knew what I needed to say. I was about to say something. But thankfully, the Spirit of God, it's like grabbed my brain. And I, I had my mouth open, but I stopped. And I remember thinking, maybe I'm not hearing them. Like I thought I was, but, but maybe I'm not. And if I'm not, maybe I should be listening instead of talking. And so, you know, like a fish, I was like that. And then I kind of closed my mouth and I listened. And, and what I heard was not easy to hear, but it was essential. It was formative for me in terms of preparing me for the work that God had. God had called me to plant, but not right then. It was years after I thought it would be because God's timing is better than ours. But, but that moment of, of coming to the, the brink of having not heard them for so long and then almost going forward, that was God's grace in my life. Can, can you, have there been those times in your life where either by, by the grace of God, you've stopped yourself or you've barreled on through? That's been true of me many times. 
See, what we see here is that we are setting ourselves up for failure if we are ignoring the warnings of others. If we're not listening to the voice of the people in our lives who, who love us and care for us, and certainly if we're ignoring the voice of God through the word of God. You'll see also in Peter that this pride, this uh, ignoring warnings, it also leads to a place of neglecting prayer, which makes sense because he, he, in a sense, doesn't think he needs it. Look again, though. This is the third thing. And um, a little bit later, sort of in the Easter story, they had Last Supper. Jesus says, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going we're gonna to pray there. Uh, he leaves most of the disciples by themselves, but takes uh, Peter, James, and John and says, I'm going to pray. You guys pray too. Pray with me. Watch with me. But when he comes back, they're, well, here's what happens. This is Matthew 26, verse 40. And Jesus, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That happens two more times, three times, that Jesus comes and says, look, you should be praying right now. There's temptation coming. He goes away and Peter falls asleep. Why would he, why would he fall asleep? Well, we know the answer, probably, that he's tired. <laughs> He had a long day. He had a big, the last supper is a big meal, right? He was kind of sleepy. We know that he would, that makes sense. But there are many times in our lives when we are very, very tired and yet we don't sleep. And usually those are times when we are really wrestling with something. When we're, in, we're anxious about something. We're, if we're Christians, we're probably in prayer, right? We're, we're awake at night. We're praying, Lord, I, there's this thing. I don't know how to deal with it. Lord, would you please help me in this situation? Whatever it is, at that point, we know that we need help. The times that we fall off to sleep are, are generally times we're at peace with ourselves and with our circumstances. That was Peter. Peter heard what Jesus said, heard about the warnings. He thought, I think everything's gonna be fine. Right? He, was, he was confident in himself and because of that, he was not prepared. He had not been in prayer. And what we see then is this road to failure filled with pride, ignoring warnings, neglecting prayer. It's something that culminates in, in a catastrophic failure. And this here is an opportunity for us to think about our own lives. Is there any pattern in your life of this? I mean, does this resonate with you at all? Could it be that there are some areas of your life where there have been people that have been speaking into your life, where they've been warning you about something, and you've just been barreling on ahead? The best way to figure this out is to actually ask the people in your life. Not, not right now, but like later, you could do that. And I would encourage you, before you ask pray and say, Lord, would you, would you give me a humble heart? Because that's always the, the toughest part. Would you help me, Lord, to actually hear what the people in my life are saying? You can ask them. Is there anything that you've been trying to tell me? You can ask the Lord as you go to, to the word. Lord, is there something that I'm not seeing? Because when we do that, we, we eliminate those things which are going to put us in a precarious situation. See, for Peter, he didn't, he didn't do that. And so he found himself in in probably the, the worst situation where there would be a lot of pressure and he wasn't prepared. So that's the road to failure, now the circumstances of failure. Up to this point, uh, we should be concerned for Peter. He hasn't yet failed though. He's stepping into the courtyard, nothing yet has gone wrong, but there, almost immediately, there are, there are pressures that are put upon him that cause a catastrophic failure. Um, it's always important that we examine those circumstances, examine those pressures, for us, looking back, so that we might learn to anticipate them and so that we might then know how to respond. 
Uh, this made me think of a, of a documentary I saw a couple of years ago about a, a catastrophic uh, failure. This was uh, a documentary about a crane, a, a, uh, one of the largest cranes in the world. It's called Big Blue. It's a heavy lift crane. Here's a picture of it, uh, assembling, I think, a nuclear power plant or something like that. Uh, in the documentary, they were using Big Blue to put the roof on a new stadium for the Milwaukee Brewers, a baseball stadium. And uh, it was this big trussing system, and it was, it was lifted way up, and on July 14th, 1999, as they were installing this roofing system, things went horribly wrong, and uh, yes, there was someone there taking a video, so we're going we're gonna to watch the, the failure of the crane. And that was, that was not a good day. That was actually a very, uh, very sad day. There's three iron workers that died in that, in that collapse, and you can sort of see the aftermath of it, of just the crane laying over there, and... Um, and of course, the question everyone was wondering is like, what, what happened? Why, why did that happen? That was the point of the documentary is that they were examining because on the, on the face of it, even though that was a massive uh, roofing section, it was not heavier than it should have been. The crane was in working order. It wasn't a very windy day. And so they were wondering what, what went wrong. They're looking for the, the pressure points. And what they discovered through uh, computer modeling and doing some wind tunnel analysis is that even though the wind that day was very, very light, because of the shape of the roof, that kind of webbing, it actually acted like a sail. And so the light wind, that the force of it was amplified as it was caught by the roofing section. And if you notice, the crane kind of went over to the side. So there is this lateral pressure and the whole thing, it, it collapsed. And, and sadly, in a devastating way. See, that's always the way that we fail, is that there are pressure points. There's often unexpected pressure that, that leads us to a point that it crumples certain areas of weakness that we didn't see. That's what we're going to see here in Peter. We're going to look at every instance of his denial and see how it is that he came to a place of denying the man that just hours earlier, he said he would go with him unto prison and unto death. The first verse, verse 69, the first instance of his denial shows us the unexpected nature of the pressure put on Peter. It says, a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. See, those words were probably out of his mouth before he even knew what he was saying, because her question had caught him off guard. Now, I think we need to assume that Peter was ready for some sort of conflict. If you remember uh, his, his showing in the garden, as Jake took us through a few weeks ago, he pulled a sword, he was ready to fight. He was ready to take on the whole Roman army. So now, going into the situation, he was probably thinking that there might be some sort of conflict here. The guards might try to seize me. He was ready for a physical battle. What he wasn't ready for was a, a, a young girl just asking him a pointed and simple question about his allegiance. He was caught off guard. You can't fight girls, even in the ancient world, right? You can't do that. So he, how would he, he didn't know what to respond. So he had to say something. And before he knew it, what was coming out of his mouth was, well, I, I, don't, I don't know the man. And at that moment, his pride kicked in because he would have been ashamed and embarrassed right away. And then things began to, to crumble. It's important for us to see this unexpected nature of the pressure because, because the truth of the matter is that we, we typically endure tests of faith that we don't expect. They come from a place that we're, we're, we're not expecting. We don't see it coming. I mean, just as an example, uh, for me this morning, uh, I'm, 
you know, Sunday mornings, I get up early, uh, praying, working through my message at home, and then getting breakfast ready. Usually a few of the boys come with me. And so I'm kind of really focused. I'm like, Lord, you know, I want to make sure that uh, everything's good. I'm looking ahead, looking ahead. And so like, everything's getting ready. We're going to get in the van. And just before we leave, James, my oldest, he says to me, uh, Dad, is there like supposed to be water like in the basement, like dro- you know, dripping from the ceiling? Like, no, there's never, what do you mean? So we go down and there's all this water coming down and, and all of a sudden all of my uh, kind of soberness and kindness, grace, focus is gone. And I'm like running around, grabbing towels, slamming doors, yelling at kids, trying to get this figured out because we got to go. Come on, get in the car. It was an unexpected pressure that revealed in me some, some, some anger and some frustration that I, I didn't think was there. That's always the way it is with these kinds of attacks. In fact, um, I found this quote from John MacArthur commenting on this passage, but I think it's helpful. He says this, A person's involuntary response to the unexpected is a more reliable indicator of character than his planned reaction to a situation he anticipates. See, when those words start pouring out of your mouth, when I react with frustration, when Peter starts saying, I don't know the man, that's, that's something that was true of him. It was there. He just had masked it over. When we respond in the moment, we we see what's truly inside us. And and for Peter, he would have immediately been been just grieved by his answer. But because of his pride, he didn't didn't go back on it. In fact, he doubled down again and again on on his denial. Look look how it goes. Uh, the The next interaction is this. And when he went out to the entrance, so that tells us that he was ashamed. Because in the middle of the courtyard would have been the fire, where you go for warmth, but it also you would have seen everyone's faces. But when he goes back to the entrance, he's stepping into the shadows. He's hoping everyone will forget he's there. But of course they don't. Why? Because um, Caiaphas has these servant girls with these eagle eyes. I don't know what it is with them, but look, another servant girl saw him. Again, the servant girl. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. So here, Peter is swearing an oath, which means that he's asking God to be a witness to his words. Typically, doing this to uh, affirm the truth of them. Saying, like, as God is my witness, I'm telling you, I don't know the man. Why is he saying that? Because he's flustered? Because he doesn't want to look a fool? Because he doesn't want to be now identified? And so he's just, he's digging himself a deeper and deeper hole. And the final point of denial comes just after that. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Uh, Peter was from Galilee, and so they would have been able to tell by the way he speaks that he's, he's not from around here. It would be like if someone from Nova Scotia were here, and, and you were like, aren't you from Nova Scotia? And they're like, maybe, I don't know what they sound like. <laughs> I was trying to do it earlier, but, um, but you would know right away, right? You'd be like, no, you're, I hear in your voice, you're not from here. And, but Peter, he's not admitting it. He's doing what people tend to do when they're caught in a lie and they don't want to admit it. They just get louder and bigger and more emphatic. I, I don't know him. I'm telling you. He's calling down a curse upon himself, which is basically meaning, look, I, I want God to curse me if what I'm telling you is not the truth. This is, this is failure on so many levels. He's denying the very Jesus whom he professed to believe in unto death. He's not telling the truth and he's asking God to be a witness to his lie. This is failure on a grand scale. And the only thing worse than failing in this way is to do it in front of someone that you know and you respect. And that also happens to Peter. Because if you know the, the full account of the story, which you see in Luke, it's at this point of his denial when Jesus and Peter lock eyes. 
Probably uh, Jesus is looking out through a window or through an open doorway. And here's what we see in Luke 22.60. Peter said, I do not know what you're talking about. So that's his third denial. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, if that was us locking eyes with Peter, our expression probably because we're horrible people, would have been like, see, Peter, I told you so, right? This is what I told you would happen. You should have listened to me. I don't think that's Jesus's intention. He's meeting eyes with him. It's, it's an act of grace to do this. It emphasizes, yes, his failure, but also it emphasizes the fact that, that Jesus is at work, that Jesus knows him. And if you notice, the effect of it is that it succeeds in doing what Peter had not been able to do, which is it's just a stop, to kind of come to his senses, to recognize his sin. I think it's fair to say, in light of this passage and the teaching of Scripture, that for those of us who are in a pattern of sin where we're having, it's difficult for us to stop. Maybe we've been trying to, maybe we know we should, we just, there's been a, a continual pattern of sin. It's not until we come face to face with Jesus that we will truly see the weight of our sin, that we will truly come to the point of conviction. That's what we see here with Peter. And if you think about what he would be seeing, it it makes perfect sense. I mean, the weight of it. Because he's looking into the eyes of Jesus. Jesus, who he knows is the Christ. Knows is the Son of God. And also Jesus, who is is submitting himself to an an unjust and unfair trial. Who is following the, the plan of God to go to the cross. All for Peter's sake. He's looking at Jesus and seeing him literally as both his Lord and his Savior. Seeing what Jesus is willing to do to show his love for him. And it's in that moment that that Peter just, he crumples, he weeps. And that weeping is a good sign. If if there's in your own life or someone you know that they're, they're just broken because of their sin, that is the first step towards restoration from sin. And and that's what we see with Peter. He doesn't continue on down the road of failure. He stops himself and he weeps. And we see in that that he he recognizes what he has done. The restoration of failure is something that begins with conviction of sin, but it leads to hope in God. That's the third thing we're going to look at, not just the the road to failure, circumstances of failure, now the the restoration from failure. And here we're going to widen our scope a bit Uh, Peter is not the only disciple who has failed that evening. In fact, they all did. But the other uh, disciple who failed the worst was Judas. And we're going to look at both of their responses to this failure. Uh, Not just because they both failed the worst, but because Matthew seems to want us to do that. He puts one right after the other. In fact, uh, uh, chapter 27, he gives us a little bit of plot uh, point. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away, delivered him over to Pilate the governor. So they were being told the Jewish council put him to death, but they, they didn't have the power to do that. They had to send him to Pilate. That's what we're going to look at next week. Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor. But then right away, kind of sort of inserting itself into the Easter story, uh, Matthew tells us about Judas about what happened to Judas. And here's what we see in verses three to five. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Now, now stop there for a minute. Think about that interaction there. We see that Judas was surprised. He, I guess he didn't think that that's how serious things would get. He, he knew he betrayed Jesus, but maybe he thought he was just going to get beaten or flogged or something. But now he's been, he's been sentenced to death. And, and something in Judas says, that this is more than I thought. This is, this is not right. And so he goes back to the leaders. And he says, look, I, I want to change my testimony. I, Jesus is innocent. I don't want my, my testimony to be used against him. And I don't want this money. He's hoping, no doubt, that they will feel compelled to stop the proceedings. Because Jesus is the one who started them. But in fact, what we see is that they're not concerned about justice at all. And they're also not concerned about Judas. I mean, if you think for a moment, these are the priests. They're like the pastors of the day. Their job was to help people to find peace with God. And in this moment of moral crisis, where where, where Judas is just undone, what's their response? They say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. They heap the burden of his guilt back up on his own shoulders. And they say, you go and deal with it. We, we don't want any part of it. And it's at that point that Judas sees there is no undoing what he's done. And the magnitude of his sin, the, the, the depth of his darkness, it, it envelops him. It brings him to a point of despair and self-destruction. I'm just going to finish off by reading verse 5. Here, here's what happens to Judas. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. We've looked at a number of instances of failure, like the Dyson vacuum, the crane, and, and those were, I mean, the crane was a devastating failure, but, but the point there for the most part was, look, when there's failure, you need to examine it, you need to see what you can do better, and then you need to move on. What we see here with Judas is that there, there's some failure that doesn't work that way. Failing to design a vacuum with adequate suction is, is not the same as sin. See, with sin, you can't simply recognize it and move on. You, you need to make up for it. It's wrong that's been done. You need to find a way to, to make peace with it. What you really need is forgiveness. That's the issue why, why sin is, is not just like any other failure. It's failure on a moral and spiritual level that brings us to a point where, where we need help apart from ourselves. We can't just move on. We'll never have peace. See, the difference, the essential difference between Peter and Judas is the hope of forgiveness that comes from God. With Peter, he comes to understand that with Judas, he doesn't. We see with Judas uh, some language that he, he's remorseful about what he did. But if you look at the way that it's translated, it's a good translation, it says that he changed his mind, which is different than coming to a point of repentance. For Judas, it was, it was an intellectual thing. He realized that he did, he did a bad thing that it wasn't right. But if you notice the way that he tries to undo it, he goes and, and tries to undo what he did, tries to give back the money, he confesses his sin to man, but he never turns to Jesus himself. He never confesses to God. And the reason for that is that Judas, in spite of all the time that he spent with Jesus, he did not have genuine faith in Jesus. And so because of that, when it came to his sin, he was left to deal with it himself. And so because he was hopeless, because he was so desperate, he came to the point of ultimate self-destruction, which is suicide. Now, it's important here that we, that we realize that this does not mean that everyone who takes their own life is dying apart from God. 
This does not mean that, that everyone who commits suicide, we can paint with the same brush and say that they, they didn't know the Lord and that we, we don't know their heart. They're, coming to the point of taking your own life is a, is a complex issue. Mental illness plays a huge part. Mental illness that, that has some answers with medical science. But see, here with, with Judas, we, we don't see a history of, of mental illness. What we see is a man who is grieved by his sin, recognizing the, the lack of hope that he has and then destroying himself because of it. And we actually see, um, see lesser instances of this in all of us who try to deal with sin on our own. By that I mean that we tend to, tend to engage in self-destructive behavior when we are wrestling with a sin that we have no peace over. We, we eat too much, we buy too much, we drink too much, we date people we shouldn't. All of that a result of this very often turmoil over sin. Here we see the most dramatic and sorrowful example of it. Now you might, you might wonder, we can see where that led sadly with Judas, but Peter looks very similar. I mean, Peter also is weeping bitterly. We don't see any confession from Peter. Right? Peter doesn't confess his sin to, to anyone. It just ends with him weeping bitterly. What, what's the difference? Well, for Peter, it's very clear that in that moment, he is... He's in the depth of his sin. He's in a deep, dark valley, but that's not where he stays. With Judas, he leaves that courtyard. He never returns. But with Peter, with Peter, we see that he stays close to Jesus even into the end. I mean, we don't know all the details, but what we do know from the text of scripture is that Peter, he was one of the first disciples to see the empty tomb. That Peter, for all of his grief, for all of his remorse, he did not come to a place of total hopelessness. He came back to the community of faith. He would have been there at the, the crucifixion of Christ. He would have just felt horrible. Imagine knowing that Jesus is doing this and you've, you've denied him. He would have had such inner turmoil, but it did not lead him away forever. He came back and he found the empty tomb. And then, and then by the grace of God, we saw that the details of how exactly Jesus would restore him fully. See, Peter's faith ultimately was not in himself. He failed miserably in that moment where he was trusting in himself in some capacity, but there was a rock bottom faith in him that was in Christ, that he did love Jesus because he knew who Jesus was. He knew the Jesus who had warned him about his failure and promised to be with him in the midst of it and beyond it. He knew the Jesus who had given him a glimpse of the road beyond his trial and that he would use him. He knew the Jesus who had made eye contact with him convicted him of his sin. And then he came to know the Jesus who would restore him through words of such forgiveness and grace. And and this happens near the end of the book of John. Just to round out the whole story of Peter and this this time of denial, I want to read for you what happens when Jesus is resurrected. He comes and he, he visits the people that he knows. And one of the first things he does is he comes to visit the disciples and Peter is one of them. And there's this interaction with with Peter and him kind of on the shore of a lake. They've had breakfast. And if you know the story, you know it's power. I want to read it for you in in full. But just think for a moment about Peter's attitude there. Jesus is alive. That's fantastic. But I'd be surprised if Peter could even look him in the eye. I mean, he would have just felt so horrible, so worthless. But look at the words of Jesus. He says, uh, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. These are powerful words. Even just the structure of it. You can imagine Peter hearing the first question and thinking, I, I know I didn't do it right, but by the third time, he's, he's grieved, he's weeping. He knows what Jesus is talking about, what he's doing. But you see there that, that for Peter, this is a time of restoration. Again, Jesus is not mentioning this to condemn him, but to lift him up. And what we see here that is so beautiful is that even beyond our failures, God wants to use us. You see that, uh, that language um, of feed my sheep, feed my lambs? What Jesus is saying there is, look, I'm the shepherd. All who follow me are like my sheep. Peter, I'm entrusting them to you. I'm going to use you to build my church. Just imagine for someone who must have felt so worthless, so youth, useless. Here Jesus is saying, I'm going to use you in a mighty way. And in fact, that's what we see through the book of Acts, that Peter is the one who gives the sermon on Pentecost. Thousands of people come to faith in Christ. The last bit of Jesus' words, though, are especially impactful for Peter because what he's saying to Peter is, you know, when you were young, you went where you wanted, you dressed yourself where you wanted. When you're old, you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go. You're going to stretch out your arms. And what's that saying is that Peter will be crucified for his faith. History tells us that Peter was going to be crucified and he requested that he would be crucified upside down because he didn't, he didn't want to be killed in the same way that Jesus was. He, he wanted to separate himself. See, Peter, Peter did the thing that he was hoping he would do, which would be faithful to the end. But he did it not in his own strength, but in the strength of Christ. And that came after his failure. That came as he recognized the, the reality of his weakness and, and the grace of God in his life. That, that built him up and strengthened him. Look, I'm not sure where we are, are all today. Um, I'm not going to ask you if there's failure that's part of your life because I think that's true of all of us. All of us in some capacity, either in the past or in the, now, are dealing with failure. The question is, what's our response to it? Where do we go with it? There may be some of us who are feeling so weighted down by our failure that, like Peter, we're, we're feeling useless and worthless. There's nothing that God can do with me. And yet here we can see that that is could be further from the truth. When you have a faith that is in something other than yourself, Christ himself, who has gone to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, and then been raised to new life, there is hope for each of us in our failures. There is hope for those of us who have faith in the one who lives. And you can just think of, of Peter. I wonder for him, if that crow of the rooster, I mean, that probably at first, can you imagine every morning waking up to that crow of the rooster and just feeling the weight of your guilt again and again, saying, why did it have to be a rooster? Why not something that's not so common? But the, the rooster every morning would have reminded him, but I don't think that would have stayed that way for the rest of his life. I think that, yes, there would have been that twinge of, of failure, but more than that, more than that, there would have been the reminder of God's grace, that in spite of that failure, Jesus is using him for all the rest of his life, even unto death. 
That's the picture for us of the cross, of the Easter story, and what it is that God wants for us to know this day, a day of failure perhaps, a day of struggle, but a day where we can know the hope of God, the forgiveness of God in the midst of our sin. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then we are gonna respond by praising God for all that he has done. Join with me in prayer, please. Lord God, thank you so much for the Easter story. Thank you, God, that every part of it, Lord, is just so infused with grace and hope. I thank you, Lord, for Peter and for the way in which you were so gracious to him. Lord, I know that that is the same for us, Lord, but, but so often we forget it. So often we get just mired in our own failure, our own sin, and we feel like there's nothing good that we can do. I pray, Lord, that this day you would remind us that there is good by your grace, through your power, that even in the midst of our sin, Lord, when we confess it, when we bring it to you, it is, it is wiped clean. We are wiped clean. I pray, Lord, that that would be true for each one of us today. Lord, for those of us who have faith, would you remind us and, and refresh us in this truth? And Lord, for those that haven't yet come to faith, I pray, Lord, that there would be a greater insight that you give so that they too might find that hope even in the midst of the, the worst failures of their lives. We praise you, Lord, for this season. We praise you for this text. I pray, God, that you would use it to encourage us in the days and weeks to come. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.